Space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster podcast. This week, we'll be talking about a variety of updates in space news, including some news uh, from NASA about Venus. My name is Jamie Carrero, and I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Robin Seamangle and Chris Gebhardt. Say hello, guys. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Jamie. And uh, hello, everyone. It's great to be back. Indeed it is. Yeah, lots to discuss here. I know. We've got uh, quite a bit of news to cover, as our listeners know. Sometimes we wait a couple of weeks before we catch up. As you know, we're all very busy. So there's been some news the last week, last two weeks, actually. The expansion of human spaceflight into the private sector is one of the biggest stories right now. Private spaceflight, new rocket companies, new launchers. It's a very bustling industry. It's very exciting to see. I think Chris and Jamie would agree that five years ago, we were waiting for all this stuff to happen. And now we're here and we're playing catch up as always. So let's get right into it. Rocket Lab, a small launcher based in California, but uh, flies out of New Zealand and will soon be flying out of Wallops here in Virginia. That's where uh, I live in Arlington. They've had two incidents in uh, less than a year where uh, they had a loss of mission due to a failure with their electron rocket. Chris, I read yesterday that they are going to be allowed to return to flight soon, that they've been able to recreate the error in which mm -hmm. they lost their last payload a couple weeks ago. First off, what happened to that rocket? And is it really like fast that they, they're just been given approval to refly again? Yeah, two two good questions. I'll take the second one first because actually no, this is not unusual. When when they suffered a failure on the ironically named Pix or it didn't happen mission, um, right. they returned to flight actually within about six weeks and had approval right around the three to four week mark to go again, pending the wrap up of that investigation. So not uncommon that the FAA would grant authorization to return to flight, especially since, as you mentioned, they've successfully been able to replicate the failure. Now, what that failure is, we still don't really know, or at least Rocket Lab has not confirmed. But basically right. what happened on flight 20 was that when the, when the first stage burned perfectly, separated, the second stage engine ignited, and something occurred in that moment that, that instead of causing it to fly straight, it just started spinning. Like basically the control system that controls how the nozzle is steered just went like hard left and it just started spinning. And once it did that, the onboard systems realized there was a problem and shut the engine down as it was supposed to, to terminate the flight. Right. Now, Rocket Lab says that, and this is a quote from their CEO, Peter Beck, saying, quote, with a vehicle with so much flight history and our heavy mission assurance and quality focus, an anomaly was always going to be a complex failure, and this one is turning out to be an intricate and layered failure analysis. Mm -hmm. However, we have successfully replicated the failure in testing and determined it required multiple conditions to occur in flight. We are now in the process of piecing together the sequence of events and preparing corrective actions for a safe and swift return to flight. So it sounds like it's a combination of a lot of different things that maybe don't show up in your standard ground testing and require like an unbelievable coincidence to get you in flight, but that it happened to them. So it, it is, it is interesting. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's been fascinating to me too, is this is their second failure in a couple of years now. And the fact that the failures were different is in a way good because it shows that it wasn't a repeat of the one that got them last time. And, and that, that issue 
12 knowledge is fixed. Mm -hmm. And I think their rapid ability to return to flight is something that will likely keep their customer base and not really have a destabilizing effect on the small sat industry or market. Now, aside on a more positive note, they recovered a booster. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So this was sort of the unfortunate thing when the second stage failure occurred, right? you lost the primary mission, the booster recovery was secondary. So you don't want to stay and brag, right? right, (laughs) That you recovered booster, but they did successfully get the booster back. And it really demonstrated that a lot of the heat shield upgrades that they they had made between the first booster recovery and the second one have really worked. And the booster came back in better condition. And I think there was even a picture of one of the engineers or technicians inspecting the engine that had come back from it after they pulled it out. So good progress being made there in terms of making Electron a reusable vehicle from a first stage perspective. So do you have a perspective, Chris or Robin, about how much refurbishment has to be done? Because every time I hear a story of, oh, they recovered a stage or some part of their launch, I think, well, how much is that reusable? And how much did you just get kind of like the empty cardboard tube from the firework on the beach? <laughs> um, it's a good it's analogy. A, it is. It is. And it's, and it's a really good question. Um, for Rocket Lab, the answer is that they're still figuring it, this out and that that's a lot of what the first recoveries are designed to show them. The, the first one, you know, they, they sort of said, OK, we think this is what we need. Let's test it. And let's see what the vehicle actually looks like when it comes back. And then from that, they made tweaks and they're going to go forward. The thing with these splashdowns into the ocean, like the first two have been, is that that makes it really, really hard to reuse components because of saltwater corrosion. So eventually what Rocket Lab will do is transition to a mode of catching the boosters in the air as they descend under parachute and they'll catch it with a helicopter. And that way they can just bring it right back to the recovery ship put it right down on the deck and then bring it back and really protect it. And that's what we're really enable, like the Falcon nine boosters, which land on the barges or the drone ships. And then, you know, instead of splashing down, it's going to end up being very similar to that, but exactly how long it will take and exactly what components can be reused and how many times is really what rocket lab is still trying to figure out. And to an extent, SpaceX as well, because we have seen some issues with their boosters during landings, the higher up into the flight numbers they've gotten. So it's, it's all kind of still a learning curve for some of these companies. And SpaceX has tried soft water landings, a couple in lead up to the first drone ship attempt. Yes. And Chris, you I feel like you and I are the only ones that remember this. Guff sat one. Oh, right before one, Falcon yes. Heavy. <laughs> yes. So that, that was an interesting one where a Falcon 9 booster was making a water landing. Yeah. Because they, they didn't need to recover it. Again, it was one of the older versions of the Falcon 9 right. on its second flight. So they were just going to ditch it into the ocean, but practice a landing. And they'd done this several, several times before. And the boosters always broke apart when they right. tipped or over. Or blow up in, right on impact. Or blow up on impact. And yeah. this one landed. It landed. And landed on the water, into the water <laughs> and was still floating and they had to scuttle it <laughs> yeah they sent yeah. out a a little platoon and uh blew it up yeah i mean it man there's so many things that come to mind not the least of, i mean it's, it's reaching a little bit far back but it makes me think about the shuttle and how that was meant to be the ultimate reusable spacecraft and ended up being almost a, a ship of theseus type thing where how many parts do we replace before it's a new shuttle right 
So I think about that a lot. Um, but also one thing I wanted to ask is, isn't it true that SpaceX has now abandoned their catcher's mitt approach to the payload fairing? Oh, good question. Although I think since I since since I'm on one of these podcasts, I would be remiss if I did not point out that yes, your your comment about the shuttle is correct. Though from a technical perspective, most of the vehicles were what they were when they were actually delivered, except for software upgrades and like the cockpit got updated at one point, but um, a lot of it was the same. But yeah, the, to the SpaceX fairing catchers, yeah, they basically ended up redesigning the payload fairings to put the vent ports above the water line so that the fairings can just splash down into the water and then one of the recovery ships can just go fish them out. They could reuse that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and then that uh, was, was too complicated for them? or Well, they realized they, could reuse the, they realized they could reuse the ones that landed in the water if they made yeah. a slight adjustment to the design to protect certain ports that would have been damaged by salt water. So that was just yeah. sim- simpler and cheaper anyway. Yeah. 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 Much, it's yeah. a cheaper and, and honestly, you know, less boats involved, always a better thing. Well, and, and, yeah. And you as don't Elon have to run a fleet of same, ships. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Always better. <laughs> well, it, exactly. Cause that does fit Elon's motto of de-engineer it, yes. right? Make it as yes. simple as possible. And yeah, that's all they have. And to as do. cheap as possible. Yeah. Cause exactly. that also was not part of their, their vertical integration. At least part of the ship operation had to be contracted out and that's not really right. efficient. You know, remember each payload fairing is 6 million. Yes. And how much have they recovered? Oh, quite a bit so oh, far. Oh, they, they, they recovered, recovered quite a bit. One, mm. I mean, on the last one with a payload fairing, one fairing half was on its fifth flight. So that's yeah. $30 million they saved, or twenty, you know, $24 million or whatever, they saved on not having to produce a fresh par- a fairing for that. Yeah, because people right, forget. Right. We've said this before on the podcast, but I'll just reiterate. Every part of a spacecraft that returns to Earth is mostly its own little spacecraft. Right. You know, right. It, has, yes. yeah, it <laughs> yeah. has all kinds of different elements little, to it. And right. the electronics fairings. And- yeah, the payload fairings look like it's just a shell that drops off, but it's not. It just, it's just it's a little shell-shaped thing. spacecraft that has yeah. to get back to Earth and survive. Think about, and uh, this is a really terrible example, but since Elon was in Iron Man 2, think about the Iron Man suit where it assembles on him in little pieces. They each have a little propulsion element. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's how you got to think of it. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like we're really yeah. zoomed in on nanobots. There's not quite right. that many, but yeah, it is, it <laughs> is like that. And it's the same for, you know, when you see these, the first stage landings from SpaceX and all that, it's each one of those things. It has to be a self-contained spacecraft. You can't like have it return to Earth without a brain, which means you have to put a computer right. in each element and you have to put a fuel tank and you have to put an engine, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and a, and a lot of what we don't talk about is, you know, the payload fairings have thermal protection system on them, not necessarily for reentry, but for atmospheric heating going up because it's taking the full brunt of the Air Force as right. you're accelerating. So they kind of already had a built-in thermal protection system that SpaceX was just able to go, all right, well, that works for atmospheric entry too, you know? <laughs> Simplify it. Yeah, just come down at some kind of similar speed and and you're in the green. Right. (laughs) All right, guys. I think that we need to get to a Rocket Lab launch because I've never seen one in person. And I think Wallops is three and a half hours for me. Chris, you've been to Wallops, Mm -hmm. correct? I have not, actually. You haven't? Oh, my God. I don't feel terrible anymore because it's been on my list since I've been a space reporter. And I haven't 
seen a launch outside of Kennedy Space Center yet, of course. So, <laughs> and I think wow. Wallops is your, and I think Wallops is your closest spaceport. Actually, yeah, it's technically. It, oh wait, wait, hold on, hold on. That's a lie. I did watch an Antares launch a few months back with, funny enough, some of my uh, Northrop friends uh, down at Alexandria, which is quite mm. a bit away probably 30, 40 miles, probably even longer, but actually much longer. But I still saw it. It was a tiny dot, but I still technically saw the launch. Uh, It's going on my tally. (laughs) But I would love to go visit Wallops and shout out to the folks uh, that work there. I hear they're very friendly and and they love having journalists and content creators come by to cover launches. So if you guys are listening, we are going to be making our way over there very soon. Absolutely. for For a rocket launch. One one thing, if you guys could give just for our audience some context about what's the scale of launch we're talking about with Rocket Lab? Like, how do they fit into the pantheon oh. of launch providers? Right. Okay. So, well, okay. So, in terms of in terms of business, they're one of the busier ones each year up, up there with SpaceX and Roscosmos. They do launch quite a bit, and they have the by far the majority of the small satellite launch market undedicated missions, though there are competitors entering that field, namely with Astra. And how, sm- how small is small? But yes. Now, here's the thing. So picture the Falcon 9 rocket. Okay. Now think down to the base of the first stage and the landing leg, right? And the four little landing legs that deploy. An electron rocket is the same height as one of those landing legs. Ha! What a great comparison. <laughs> Oh my God! That's okay, really so, that Morgan's not going to be happy with that comparison, Chris. <laughs> well, but I mean, that's just the size of the rocket. I mean, that's, when like, we're, when, that's like sounding when, rockets, yeah. right? Like scientific I mean, suborbital yeah, rockets. They're small kind of, launchers, kind of scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it's these a small do launcher. go. These do go to orbit, though, right? Oh yeah, I mean, yes, an electron can put something. Rockets. Yeah, an electron can put things into orbit. It can send things to the moon. It can send things to Venus. It's a very capable vehicle, right? You don't have to. Your rocket doesn't have to be huge for you to have a large impact on the space community. And yeah, you, just, you just have to scale well. scale your payload mass to be appropriate to your fuel mass and rocket right. size, which is exactly what they did. And that's why electron can only take like five hundred kilograms to low Earth orbit. So, Jamie, right. I, I would say that. That's the new, right? You know, new normal for small launcher rockets that size. Like when you look at Astra, you look at, you know, relativity and look at the size of rockets they're planning for small satellites. I think that market, all those rockets and, you know, Launcher One and, and so many start rocket startups now coming along that we haven't even seen designs from yet. But mm-hmm. I think that market, that size rocket, it's, it's efficient. And I think people are using it. And I think that if it gets the job done, why why make it bigger than it needs to be? Well, it just opens up a market, you know, where you don't have to be a multi-billion dollar entity right. in order to send something to orbit, right. you know, right. like if you could, because not everybody needs to send three people plus a car to the moon. Some people just want right. to send like a nice little set of scientific instruments and a radio transmitter. And that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm excited to see my first Rocket Lab launch. So, you know, uh, Chris, do we know when that's coming up? Uh, unfortunately not. A, a lot of their schedule was sort of thrown up into the air with the failure. So I'm not entirely sure where things have settled. However, we do know that as of three weeks ago, the NASA capstone mission to the moon, which is launching from Wallops, was still on for this year. Okay. Well, that's really exciting. Um Jamie will probably have to look into potentially making a launch viewing map for Wallops Island. 
and building yeah. some fanfare around the first Rocket Lab launch here in Virginia. That's going to be really great. And yeah, Chris, definitely. we're going to have to get you. We're going to have to get you up to Virginia. <laughs> I have I have a plan to be there once the pandemic restrictions ease. Yes. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, well, let's move on. Chris, you said there was some Axiom news. We did a feature with Axiom written by Daniel Oberhaus last week announcing that a, a champion race car driver and Peggy Whitson, who we all know and love, she is the record holder for most time in space for a U.S. astronaut, which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Chris, tell us about this mission. Uh, who is this race car driver? <laughs> and why should we be excited about this? So as you, as you said, Peggy Whitson is the person who will command the Axiom 2 mission. Um, she is the U.S. astronaut with the most time in space currently. She will command the mission and in so doing will become the first woman to command a U.S. space mission since October of 2007 when Pamela Melroy, who is, I believe, her confirmation vote in the U.S. Senate is coming up to be um, associate administrator of NASA. So that will be exciting. The race car driver is John Schaffner. So he will be the pilot of that particular mission. And what's kind of exciting about this is these are uh, these are the missions from Axiom Space. So these aren't necessarily no. This is their these are their missions. These are these are these are Axiom operated missions. It should we should really call out that distinction because yes, this is operated by Axiom, and there's going to be cases, other cases where you know they're brokering a deal or exactly you know. But this it needs to be called out that this mission which is using a Dragon spacecraft, is an Axiom-operated mission. And purely private. NASA purely private, has, right. Yeah, NASA does not have an interaction with this, right? Peggy Whitson used to be a NASA astronaut, um, but right. she retired. She's a private citizen last... now. Exactly, yeah. ex- exactly. But, but Peggy Whitson also did three long-duration tours on board the International Space Station, two of those as commander of the outpost. She knows the space station really, really well. And Axiom seems to be doing this thing where they're choosing previous NASA astronauts who have retired and have flown shuttle missions and been to the International Space Station as the commanders for their flights. And then they take up rookies uh, for the other things. But what's really good about these missions, and this is what I really want to hammer home, is they're private, yes, but they are scientific flights. They are about one month-ish missions that go up to do a very specific set right. of experiments. These are not space tourism flights. Space. No. Right. They're not tourism flights. Right. They are no. actual working missions. And that's incredible. And as if that wasn't enough, like we already knew the Axiom 1 crew. So, you know, we kind of knew Axiom. So the fact that there was an Axiom 2 wasn't you know, surprising. And it was nice to see Peggy's name on there. But then out of the blue on June 1st, just two days ago from when we're recording this, Axiom then announced, oh, that's not it. We've also got a third one in 2023 and a fourth one also in 2023 that are going up as well. And this is just a really intriguing moment of you know, NASA had always said that they felt there was a commercial viability to the space station, that if they could open this up, mm-hmm. there was a market for it. And, yeah. and the first one hasn't even flown and we're out to four planned. That's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. 
I also want to point out just one other stat about the the really high-level expertise of Peggy Whitson is not only is she the person from the U.S. with the most time in space, there is also only one human on the face of the Earth that has done more spacewalks than she has. Yeah. She ties the record for, for U.S. citizens, and there is one Russian, Anatoly Soloviev, who has more spacewalks. But she is really like, when you think about experience in space, that is one of the highest level people you could hire. And it speaks to what you're saying about this being a serious mission is this, this is just, you don't just need a tour guide. They need somebody who can actually guide them to do real science in space. If you mm-hmm. want to do something really fun right now, go over to supercluster.com astronauts. You can sort, I do it by days in space. Yeah. Um, you and click by days in space. Spacewalks. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you can do number of spacewalks as well. I'm going to go ahead and click that. But the first, you know, you start to see the people who spent most time in space are Russians. <laughs> and, uh, yes. Props to them. Uh, yeah. But when you scroll down, you finally get to Peggy. Right. The first and, American and, and, on the list. And it's worth noting, too, you know, that we, we mentioned the science element of it. And you were saying, you know, Jamie, about her being able to guide people, too. It's also worth noting she has a doctorate degree in biochemistry as well. So like this is we're also sending a biochemist up there to do some of these experiments. Yeah, yeah. minor little side hobby that might come in useful. <laughs> right. It'll be really exciting, guys, to add a race car driver to the astronaut database and publicize that. He's already sent us a few DMs on Instagram. He's been posting a lot on social media and we're really excited to work with him and get updated stats for Peggy on the ADB. Chris, there was a couple of spacewalks this week, right? Yes. Um, on Wednesday, uh, June 2nd, the two Russian cosmonauts aboard the International Space Station, uh, Novitsky and Dubrov, went outside to finish the decommissioning of the Pierce docking module on the yeah. space station. So this was an interesting milestone. The first module of the space station to be decommissioned. Piers will be removed right now, no earlier than July 17th from the International Space Station by the Progress MS-16 vehicle, which is currently docked to it. So instead of uh, the Progress ship undocking from piers, the same sort of latches that attach the piers module to the station will be undocked. And then Progress ship will just pull the module away and down into Earth's atmosphere. And this is all to make room Oh, that the... hurts. It hurts. Wait, wait though. Right. What, hurts. what happens <laughs> next? What happens <laughs> next? You left off the end. Does it... No, no, no. Hold on. This hurt. It... It, just, it just feels hurt. I feel hurt. But does it enter or does it burn? What is the final journey of this? Just tell us. I have to know. I've already, I've already personified it in my head or anthropomorphized it in my head. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, it will be a destructive reentry into oh, Earth's atmosphere. No. Over yes, the used the word destruction. No, yes. okay. I'm going to rephrase it, though. Having lived out its epic mission in yes. orbit, helping <laughs> helping humanity explore at least the near cosmos for more than probably two years. decades, right? This vital element of our scientific journey into the into space will finally see its end in a Viking burial in the upper atmosphere as it burns its last from the first fire that sent it into orbit to the last fire that will deconstruct it to prevent some kind of Kessler syndrome. We honor thee capsule. Good night. <laughs> that was incredibly specific and Very well, and well done that. for off the top of your head. Congratulations. We're going to steal that for Supercluster copy at some <laughs> Yes. Just to quote, I can't remember what character it was. It was Deep Space Nine. I think it was one of the Ferengis. 
Actually, it might have been the, the episode where they time travel to Roswell. But one oh. of the characters says, you know, they were making fun of the humans at the time, which obviously in Roswell era, like obviously we're a little backwards. Yeah, um, a little but, silly uh, little monkeys. But one of the Ferengis said, you know, these humans are capable of a lot. They went from horse and buggy mm-hmm. to space station in 100 years. And yeah. uh, this makes me think of that. It's it's just an impressive feat. And it it's sad to to decommission it. But it's as we cause. just talked about with Axiom, a new space station is emerging. There's been news of, you know, and since the three of us are here, let's talk about this real quick. Well, China. I, I, let's first talk about why Piers is being decommissioned and going okay. away. Because oh, it's yeah, actually please. because it's to make room for the new major science laboratory from Russia, uh, the Nauka yeah. Science Lab, that will be launching on the 15th of July. So basically, Nauka, this new science lab, is going to launch on the 15th. And then once it's safely in orbit and they know it's checked out and they know it's good, then they'll take peers away. And then that will free up the docking compartment that Nauka needs to attach to. So that's the whole reason we're getting rid of peers is right. to actually make room for a better scientific module. Uh, that's on the uh, an old, an old tired veteran makes way for the fresh new rookie. Let's right. do it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, we had this discussion internally, but you know, as Supercluster is, we love to overshare. We have been talking about the nature of the ISS tracker. And Jamie, please back me up here. We are considering potentially changing that to include other space stations sooner than we anticipated, because that was always part of the plan. But we're seeing a Chinese space station emerge. We're seeing movement on our space station with new modules coming in the next few years that will eventually detach on, on, to its own station. So, Jamie, what what is... What is your most recent line of thinking here? And Chris, what's your opinion on Supercluster doing this? Yeah, I mean, well, if I can just jump, jump in there, it really makes me think of the practice of biology, honestly, that that humans have always tried both successfully and in total futility to categorize the living world, to say, okay, these things are these things and those things are those things. we got plants over here, animals over here, and these things are eukaryotic or prokaryotic or whatever it is in biology. And then the duckbill platypus waddles up and is like, <laughs> And it's like, yeah, yeah it's like, <laughs> screw your taxonomy. And honestly, that's what I think of when we try and wrestle spaceflight, both in history and in the present day, into our databases, is we're always dealing with exceptions. We're always dealing, because that's the truth of categorizing anything, is that you're just enforcing a structure on something that never was started with any kind of structure. So that's what really comes to mind, is that we started in a world where there was one space station. That was just the reality. There had been a few in history, as we've illustrated through, you know, stories and videos and things. But ultimately, there was one that was the station. We even made a video that was titled The Station very intentionally. But the world has changed. And suddenly we have something where if you said the space station, people would still think of the ISS, but it would become less and less accurate for them to think that. And eventually they'll start becoming aware of the other ones. There are currently, as we all know, two space stations because China has done some amazing things and there will be three before we even notice. So, you know, my first thought is that it sort of highlights the wonderful futility of trying to tell stories that require categorization in them, but Mm -hmm. also the incredible progress that's being made that even just within a part of our lifetimes, the taxonomy of space stations has advanced in from singular to plural. That's wonderful. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think the only thing I'd add to that too is that it's it's not just the low Earth orbit space stations, but you know, we because we don't refer to it as a station, we don't really think of it that way. But the Lunar Gateway oh, for, Chris, for all even, the international partners, uh, we're gonna have to make a trip. We're gonna have to make one for that too. You're absolutely yeah. right. The oh Lunar man, Gateway. Yeah. <laughs> the Lunar Gateway. Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, so exciting. And, and, and Russia and China want their own lunar space station as well to compete with the Lunar Gateway. So. Okay, I mean, so yeah, we need what, a what whole. You... We need a. We need three times the staff. Great. I'm going to add a a to do list. Oh uh, yeah. For for three more years of work, seven days a week. And I want to hire both Brad Pitt and Arnold Schwarzenegger as actors who have been in movies where they stopped off at the moon to join us to cut a big ribbon with a giant pair of scissors and be like, "This is the real moon base tracker," because they know what it's yeah. like. Moon base tracker. Gosh, that's going to be something too one day. <laughs> Lord. Well, it's we're gonna do it. So shout out to Tristan who has to like draw all the spacecraft. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, such an yeah. amazing job. I'm but, always uh, like, here's this giant spreadsheet. Now make some art, bro. You, it only has a thousand entries. Good luck. You know, <laughs> shout out to Tristan. Um, you know, I think Supercluster followers see Tristan's art on a daily basis if you're visiting our ADB and ISS tracker. But yes, lots of things to come with the ISS tracker. We do have two big stories that we need to get through here. Yeah. James Webb Space Telescope, the latest date before the recent announcement, which we're about to get into, was Halloween for this launch, which I think was on a weekend. And I think that they don't operate the spaceport on the weekend down there. So I'm not (laughs) sure that was ever a thing. But either way, the date has moved because of delays associated with the Ariane 5 rocket. Chris... Can you tell us about the nature of these delays? And I can say I know I know for certain that James Webb is is at the finish line. It's ready to go. <laughs> it's ready to get encapsulated and ready for launch. And we're just waiting on yeah. this rocket. What about yeah. the, the boy who cried space telescope? Because I'm yeah. so like, I don't believe you, guy. There is no, yeah. there's no wolf out there in the space. <laughs> so, so so in this case, there is a wolf. And and what the James Webb teams and what Northrop Grumman are, are saying at this point is, is correct. This latest delay is not the telescope's fault by any means. The telescope has done absolutely wonderful um, moving through its integration check out. There were all of the very publicized hiccups and problems along the way. But once the pieces really started coming together, this thing has functioned as expected, which is a huge vote of confidence for the very complex sequence of over like 130 single point failure unfolds it has to do once it is launched. Yeah, which, by the way, they accomplished a huge amount of milestones during pandemic times. So Goddard really jumped through some hoops and got things done during the one, one of the most difficult times to collaborate in recent human history. So good totally. on them. Totally. Yeah, and, Nor- and Northrop Grumman as the prime integrator as right. well. Yeah, totally, because they would. Yeah, yeah, this would have been really yeah. their their heavy time to work. Yeah, and unfortunately, what we now face is it's the Ariane five that has an unusual problem. So. Up until about a year ago, the Ariane 5 rockets were, you know, firing off at a pretty good pace uh, down from their launch site in Karoo in South America in French Guiana. And then all of a sudden they stopped and everything just kind of went radio silent. And like everything else during the pandemic, I think a lot of people looked at it and went, oh, the payloads, 
right? The payloads are having problems getting across the finish line because no one was talking or chattering about a problem with the Ariane 5. But then all of a sudden it came to light that on the two previous missions, when when they stopped flying, they had a quite significant issue with the payload fairing. And the payload fairing was not separating correctly and posed a danger to some payloads and they needed to stop. And those flights have not resumed yet. And the tricky part with James Webb is that they're scheduled to resume hopefully this month, although there is no confirmed date right now for when those would go. But it takes about two months to turn the launch pad around from Ariane 5 to Ariane 5. And there are two flights prior to James Webb that have to get off the ground. So at this point, it's just a matter of, is the issue with the fairing fixed? And then just when do those other two launch? And that dictates when the James Webb mission can go. Okay. Well, I'm not more nervous than I was before this conversation. Uh, I'm actually, you know, I I started out, you know, I started out with kind of a cynical comment, I suppose, but I'm actually getting pretty hopeful. And I've followed it optimistically since I first heard about it, however many million years ago. But I'm I'm starting to get excited, especially as as at least in the US. I know it's not true around the world, certainly. And, and, uh, you know, my thoughts go out to everybody who's dealing with their own sort of worst waves of the pandemic as we kind of hopefully come out of it. It does make me think that we're getting closer and closer to actually seeing James Webb amazingly just start the next long yes. wait. You know, we're just going to have to wait after, but things will get really exciting uh, at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want it to sound too, too dire, Right. Like this isn't, you know, like this, this, this isn't like, oh, oh my gosh, Ariane space isn't even close to being able to fly again. No, they are right. They've been working this issue. They'll have two flights ahead of it to, 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 you know, to monitor how the fixes and everything to the payload fairing separation mechanisms are working. So I, I'm, I'm with Jamie, like th- this is an unfortunate issue that occurred, but I'm much happier that they found it prior to James Webb and not during James Webb when, because James Webb takes up a significant part of the payload bearing. Oh yeah. And also, yeah. And I think for a lot of space fans, it's gotten to the point where you turn off your active anticipation and then you wait, you know, that James Webb is what is sitting in the wings and sooner or later, someone's going to say, get excited again, start anticipating again. And then we'll, and then we'll know it'll be a month or two out and then we can all get together again and celebrate. We're really mm-hmm. excited. And the Supercluster team has met with the James Webb team uh, recently, and it was such a, an amazing chat with them. Uh, separately, we are working on a James Webb patch, which we're, we've gone back to the table a couple times because, or I should say we went back to the drawing board a couple times, because when you're trying to design something from a design that's so amazing and iconic and almost perfect... It's quite a difficult thing. So I think the approach we're going to take with it will represent our willingness to just embrace the design of the James Webb Space Telescope. And I'm excited for everyone to see uh, the final product and uh, grab one from our shop. I wanted to interject really quick. I just got a text from John Krause, who is at Kennedy Space Center right now. SpaceX is about to launch their 22nd cargo resupply mission to the International Space Station. A lot of folks have been using our ISS dashboard, so you will see Dragon arriving at the station as soon as it arrives in the station on our dashboard. When will it be arriving, Chris? If they launch either Thursday the 3rd or Friday the 
4th. They uh-huh. arrive Saturday morning at around 9 UTC. In the okay, morning. so you would hopefully there's no delays and scrubs today, tomorrow. Well, by the time you're listening to this podcast, the Dragon should have arrived at the station. And there's a couple of new solar panels on there built by Boeing, which will be the first installed since the completion of the station years ago is that correct yes. Chris? that's awesome yeah yeah, oh, yeah so actually you- there's some fanciness about these solar panels chris tell us about how they're not so normal wait they're not <laughs> they're abnormal tell me about this oh yeah, yeah they're really yeah. cool yeah they're really cool so the the sort of iconic eight solar array wings that the space station has that makes it look like a TIE fighter from Star Wars, right? Okay. Are aging. And solar cells, as they age, they can't grab as much solar energy, right? That can be converted into electricity for the space station. So the over the years, the first set of arrays were delivered in 2000, the last set in 2009. So over the years, there's been a gradual power drop in what the station can do, which is sort of, not good right now, considering the station's demand is going through the roof, so to speak. Although there's no right. roof in space. Well, just to emphasize that, you know, as time goes by, the energy demand of any given person doing anything has gone up because we've computerized our lives. Right. So right. moment to moment, any given astronaut, you know, there were no laptops up there when we start, really. I mean, there were very primitive ones. No smart, no smart watches. Exactly. No, yeah. All kinds of stuff that's consuming energy now just from our normal course of being a person, let alone being a scientist. Exactly. So what they what they sort of realized when they were looking at this um, is that if they could utilize new solar array technology, they could get the space station back up to basically what it was when all of the eight original arrays were new. And the way they decided to do this, they went back to Boeing, which built the original ones. And Boeing has been working on these things called rollout solar arrays. So do you guys remember like the fruit roll up candies from the 90s? Of yeah, course. or even like slap bracelets. Remember those? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So that's basically what these are. Instead of folding down on top of each one another like a blind would on your window, these things roll up and they can be a lot more compact. And of course, solar cell technology has increased a lot in the last decade. So it's taking advantage of a lot of new technology. So instead of needing eight new arrays, we're only going to have six new arrays from Boeing they're going to go over top of some of the original ones, but leaving some of the original ones exposed. And then two of the original ones will just be left as is. And that's actually how we're going to get back to full power. But these things are come in little canisters and the astronauts will take them out and attach them to new fittings that were already installed on spacewalks earlier this year. And then from the ground, they'll just be commanded to unroll. And is this related, you know, because it sounds a little bit like while it's super cool to unroll your solar panels, it also adds a little bit of complexity. Is this related to payload capabilities of like uh, shuttle versus what we have now? Or, or why did they decide to go this route? That's a good question. Um, it's actually because they realized from the shuttle era that the design, the original design of the arrays while it worked because of the utilitarian element of the shuttle, that having the arrays fold down onto each other would create moments when they started to deploy them where they could break or tear. And in fact, there is one array on the International Space Station that had literally, they had to put an astronaut on the end of not just the shuttle's robotic arm, but the big scanning boom they added after the Columbia accident. They had to put the astronaut on the end of that arm grab that arm with the shuttle arm and then hand it off to the station arm 
and put this guy all the way out to the end of the station where there are no handrails, where there's a live active solar array with energy crackling through it. And he had to stitch it back together because it tore during wow. deployment. And they did it. So they sort of took all the lessons learned from that and looked at new technology and came up with this idea that rolling them out would be better. And they actually tested this a few years ago on a much smaller scale up on the station. And, and it does they, and yeah, so it's actually, it's a better solution regardless, even if you had the same kind of payload size. Does this also mean that if they had to do a similar repair at some point along the sort of long axis of the solar panel, would they roll it back in and then expose that part of the solar panel to themselves without going out there? Do you get what I'm saying? It, it's a possibility, yeah. It would it would depend on how it tore or how it broke, but yeah. that would be a possibility to sort of bring it back like if it could survive it's more accessible yeah it could survive the rolling up then maybe that would make it more accessible that's fascinating because it, it on its face it would seem to be oh that must be to make it more compact so it can fit in such and so cylinder but it seems like no it's just actually better because when you have you have to deploy regardless and so rolling is better than folding yeah that's yeah. cool I don't think Boeing's gotten this much time on our podcast in months. So <laughs> <laughs> great, uh, well, great, stay tuned great for, for these July then. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, we'll we've, we're gonna we're gonna have to do a whole episode about OFT two, which will mm-hmm. be the redo of the Starliner uncrewed test flight to the space station, which apparently is going to be super short now, right, Chris? Uh, days, I think that you said forty eight days wow. yesterday. Yeah. Really short. How do we feel about that? Well, to be fair, demo one was only a week. So it's, it's, it's within the same range of what demo yeah. one was. What will not be right. as long as SpaceX's test flights is the Starliner crew test flight. That's going to be like a quick week up and back trip. No mm-hmm. prolonged six-month stay like had been the original right. idea when NASA and Boeing thought Starliner was going to be first uh-huh. and, and everything. And then it ended up being demo two that got the extension. And crew flight tests will be much shorter because... It's going to have to go up and thread between the crew three and crew four rotations and Axiom one. And there's just a whole bunch that it has to fit between. I mean, the space station is just turning into Grand Central. It really is. And there's a docking port shortage. (laughs) It's, It's really getting crazy up there. It's just things are arriving and leaving like much faster than they were just a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think speaking of leaving, that might set the stage for, um, I think it was the last thing we wanted to talk about, about something that was going to leave the planet, right? Oh, yes. Now, Planetary Science Twitter went crazy yesterday. I heard about the award a couple hours before, and one of our writers also knew, and he was tweeting, and and he wrote an article about it uh, for another outlet. And it just seemed like everyone was relieved that Venus was finally getting some love. And not just love, double love. Two loves. Uh, that, that's Two what was loves. incredible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This was so, the, there were, I, I believe there were five. It was part of NASA's big, well, one of NASA's big programs. The Discovery, right? okay. it's a Discovery yes. program. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, these are like the big class missions, like 
the Juno spacecraft at Jupiter, right. the Cassini mission, you know, some of the Flagship Mars missions. science missions. Yeah, yes, th- these things that cost the big ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, things that cost either hundreds of millions or billions and require really big rockets you're, to get where they're yeah, going. And you're talking yes. about the GDP of a small country. Yes, yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah. And NASA's had said that the, out of those five, they would pick two. And there were two missions to Venus. And the other one I remember off the top of my head was the mission to Neptune and Triton, which garnered a lot of interest and support because we haven't been there since Voyager 2 in the late 80s. So what was surprising was that both of the Venus ones got picked. But it's incredible that they both did because this really, I think does two things, right? This is capitalizing off of the dare mighty things mantra that succeeded with perseverance. These are two incredibly complex yet amazingly influential missions. The first one is called Da Vinci Plus, and it will be a lander. So it will actually enter the Martian, it will contain a descent sphere that will go through the Martians, the, uh, uh, the, the Venusian atmosphere. It'll take measurements of the gases and elements. Why is Venus's atmosphere this runaway greenhouse effect compared to Earth's? It's going to take the first high resolution images of Venus's surface. Because we haven't been able to see past the thick clouds. Uh, no, well, we we have we have gotten some images um, okay. from the surface before, but yeah, the there have been landers. Yeah, yeah, that was my so next much. question, by the way, for for Chris, is that as far as I know, the Venus landers in history pretty much landed and then died. died as, they were, as they were yes. gasping their last breath, they did some good science for like thirty seconds. So, how have we? in the intervening time, overcome some of those challenges that make Venus so aggressively vicious when you land there. Yeah. So uh, this is where our technological development of the last uh, several decades really helps. So much like if you think about it, NASA's big mission to the sun, right? The Parker Solar Probe, where they said it's going to touch the surface of the sun because it's getting so incredibly close. And and that was a mission NASA had wanted to do for 60 years. They literally had to wait for the technology to get to a point where the craft could be built to survive. Oh, yes, just like, just like making the Avatar movies. Yeah. Well, uh, oh, well, that's a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> but, but yes, it kind of exactly like that, right? Like you had to wait for the technology to catch up in many ways. But there was also at the same time, this shift to Mars, and shrinking budgets and things just had to be prioritized. And since NASA went in the 90s with the Magellan craft, since Russia had been there or where the Soviets had been there as well in the 70s and 80s, it was just kind of like, okay, well, Mars is where we want to go. And like Jupiter's really interesting and Saturn's really interesting. We want to do them too. But then we just kind of got caught in this cycle of not enough budget to do what we wanted. So that's why the fact that there were two of these missions and that both of them went to Venus is just jaw-droppingly awesome. Because the other one is called Veritas and it will actually be an orbiter that will use a radar that can see, to your point, Jamie, of how do you do this, that will see through clouds. It's called a synthetic aperture radar. It can see through any type of weather condition and clearly define surface features. So this is going to provide incredibly accurate surface elevation charts for future Venusian exploration, as well as 3D reconstructions of how the planet and its plate tectonics and volcanism are still shaping the planet today. So are we planning any landings or are these just orbiters or close flybys? 
Yeah, so Veritas is an orbiter and Da Vinci is an atmospheric entry probe. Um, so it will actually descend into the atmosphere and measure it in that regard. But neither of them are actually going to touch the surface, right? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the Da Vinci mission will actually not just be like the atmospheric entry probe and study, but will actually touch down on the surface of Venus. Right now, the landing site is called Alpha Regio. Wow. Um, and that's where it will land. And of course, we're talking about this particular mission. This is like 2031, 2032 for atmospheric entry into Venus following about a two-year cruise to the planet in that respect. And That's what's really interesting exciting. too, and, and, you know, we talked about, you know, I know a lot of people were disappointed at the others that weren't chosen, but just because a program in the discovery program or a mission in the discovery program isn't chosen, doesn't mean it just goes away. This mission, actually, the Da Vinci one that will land on the surface actually lost the 2015 funding round proposals to the Psyche and Lucy missions, whose launches are coming up here within the next year. And it got resubmitted for the next round and then was chosen. So just because missions that were in consideration weren't chosen doesn't mean they can't resubmit right. for application later. Right. That's yeah. incredible. Now, I wanted to tell a quick story relating to this. When we uh, launched OSIRIS-REx a few years back, you know, that mission to uh, study asteroid Bennu and bring back some regolith for us to study, which will be a groundbreaking scientific event when that arrives here. Yeah, for our audience, OSIRIS-REx was a mission where we launched a Tyrannosaurus Rex into space to see if it could survive. <laughs> and eat it did, asteroids. Yeah, it did a lot of science and it ate a lot of asteroids. But sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, Robin. Just want to fill and, that in for everybody. Yeah. And uh, actually, I was looking through my mission patches last night and the mission patch for OSIRIS-REx is a giant T-Rex, an angry one. Oh, that's hilarious. so good. Yeah, so I will. Good. I will post that on our social media soon. Um, yeah. I'm going to be photographing some of those mission patches. But anyway, I was at Kennedy Space Center. It was some downtime in between events. I was chilling in the press room uh, on my laptop doing some work. A NASA planetary science lead at the time, Dr. Jim Green, came over and sat down next to me. We had we had known each other. I'd interviewed him in the past um, for other missions, but we were just chatting. And I said, aren't you, uh, you know, really excited about potentially finding carbon signatures or some kind of, you know, sign of something on Bennu's regolith when we bring it back? And he said, of course, he's super excited and he's really, really excited, but he really wanted to talk to me about Venus. And I was like, really? I was like, that's random. Like, I was like, all right, like, what do you want to talk about? I was like, whatever you tell me. You know, it could be on the record or off the record, just tell, you know, say something, you know, back then we were really conscious of uh, embargoed reports and papers. If you publish something before something was about before the actual paper went out, you can get in a lot of trouble. So I was like, hey, just, you know, just tell me what I can't publish when you tell me stuff. Dr. Jim Green is a genius and he says a really incredible things. And sometimes he doesn't know what he's supposed to say and not supposed to say. So anyway, he said something he wasn't supposed to say because this paper would not be published until later on. But he's like, listen, I think, and today he's NASA's chief scientist today. He said Venus was habitable a couple billion years ago, like Earth level habitable. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. He's like, there, you know, and obviously these are, these are theories that need to be proven with these science missions. But I, he believes that Venus could have been like Earth in, in our distant past, obviously. 
And that is a mind boggling concept to me. And I think yeah. something that is probably, you know, in the back of NASA's mind when they're going to, you know, look at the surface, look at the atmospheric buildup, they're going to try to find out about Venus's past. And that's the same thing we're doing on Mars right now, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's, yes. that's actually what so, came to mind is that, yeah. is that I've heard in, in a variety of ways, both from, from the story you're referring to and other scientists talking about their vision of the value of exploring both of these planets, yeah. is that they almost see Venus and Mars as two different potential futures of Earth or even right. two futures of Earth at different time points, you know? Right. And it could be very educational. And we think a lot about how we may not find life on either of these planets, but we may very likely find the traces of ancient life from the time when the planet was more Earth-like, perhaps. Right. That's really exciting prospect. And I'm just really excited that uh, it'll be in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully. But the 2030s. It sounds like the 2030s are going to be really, you know, you know, really cool for whoever's the space reporters. Then um, <laughs> hopefully we're still in the game. But uh, in the 2030s, that's, you know, that's humans landing on the moon again. That's humans landing on Mars. That's all kinds of amazing stuff coming up. So, oh, yeah. Just, you know, this episode was only supposed to be 35 minutes and we're into an hour already because there is just so much happening and so much going on. In space exploration. Oh, space and, is the place, man. And it's yeah, big. And it's, and the coolest thing. it's the coolest thing ever. It's fun. And it's, it's important work. Shout out to all our engineers, scientists, anyone doing any kind of research, people who design graphics for NASA's PowerPoints, anyone out there who spends their days doing something for space. Uh, thank you. And thank you for also listening to this podcast. Yeah. Shout out to our friends over at James Webb. Uh, Virgin Axiom Rocket Lab. Our friends over at Venus. I don't know if there's gaseous hot aliens over there if you're listening. We're coming. We're on our way. <laughs> Chris, how long does it take to build one of those spacecraft? Both of them are scheduled to launch right now in 2028 and 2029. Okay. That's not too long away in space. No, years. not at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, By then, we'll be complaining about the next uh, Star right. Wars trilogy. That's <laughs> no, we're going to be We'll have another Star Trek show to watch. Yeah. Just a reminder to our listeners to check out the ISS traffic dashboard. We said Dragon will be arriving this weekend, hopefully, and uh, we will be updating the dashboard to reflect its presence there. We have updated the ADB with the most recent spacewalk times from last week. As Chris had uh, mentioned, those cosmonauts uh, were doing some work outside of the space station. We have a lot of updates coming to the ADB, the astronaut database, in the next couple of months in terms of adding new people to the ADB. And these are private citizens. These are, like I said, private astronauts, which will be really interesting. Uh, we will have also coverage of the Inspiration4 mission, which will, that won't be arriving at the space station. So we won't have that aspect to our ISS traffic dashboard. But it will be great to add Jared and the rest of those folks to the ADB and get their profiles going. Um, we'll try to get them on the podcast, maybe um, to chat with them too. Uh, so yeah, there's plenty of stuff coming up. Look out in the shop. Like I said, we'll have a James Webb patch coming out soon. And yeah, lots of stuff coming. Jamie, I'll throw it to you. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to check out supercluster.com to hear more about this and other space stories. Also, sign up for our newsletter if you want to get great space coverage in your inbox every week. And remember, as always, space is for everyone. <laughs>